Welcome back, podcast listeners, 184. It's Tony here today in the hot seat with Jordan, and we have a special, very special guest today, Peter Lyndon James from Shalom House. And I'll just give a bit of background from Peter. He's the current CEO and founder of Shalom House, Australia's strictest rehabilitation centre. Uh, Peter employs a tough love approach that has seen Shalom House become the most successful uh, rehab centre in Australia. So there's, it's your, your background, Peter, has, uh, I've been following you for quite some time now on LinkedIn and I reached out to you and asked, would you be willing to do this? And you said yes. So straight away, I'm going to say thank you to you, but I just do want to give a little bit of background if this is okay before we go into your story. So Peter is a best-selling author of three books and the three books are actually titled uh, driven by pain, changed by grace, how to build a rehab and tough love book. And Peter himself, once you hear his story, you'll understand the tough love that he's put himself through and what he does to be able to save people from addiction. So he's a best-selling author. He's Telstra Building Communities National Winner 2022, Telstra Building Communities WA Winner 2022, West Australian of the Year finalist in 2017, My Business Award winner 2019-20, West Australian of the Year 2018, Telstra Business of the Year 2017, Australian of the Year finalist 2018, Telstra Business finalist of the Year 2018. Peter, it's an absolute privilege to be able to speak to you and for you, and I really want to thank you in advance thank for you, the Anna. story that you're going to tell uh, today in respect to your own personal journey and you are going to open up, which is wonderful, about what you've been through, uh, but also in relation to what you do, the amazing work that you do with Shalom House now. So, Peter, welcome to the Cochrane Bond podcast. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tony. Great. Thank you. Too. Yep. So let's 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 start so we can our listeners can get a bit of context um, in respect to your childhood and everything leading up to Shalom House. Um, to say that your childhood was interrupted would be the most underrated statement uh, that anyone could actually make. But can we start? You've you've been you know you're in and out of homes from a very young age. Uh, you're a victim of abuse yourself. You've spent all up, you know, over 26 years you've been incarcerated during certain periods of time. Do you want to start in just in respect to your childhood and how things all started for you? Yeah, so um basically grew up in uh, Lockridge in um, Perth, West Australia. I'm um, the second eldest of five kids. Um, around the age of probably six or seven, um, was when start, stuff started going um, skew with. My um, my dad actually ran off with the, the babysitter at the time, and she was 15, and which caused my mum to go down the road of uh, alcohol abuse and addiction, and um, also um, probably addiction to men. She had multiple boyfriends and stuff, and when my dad took off, we started moving from place to place, um, from school to school, um, from around the age of uh, probably six, seven up, upwards. Um, mum was that bad with the alcohol that she had to do a few stints in rehabilitation centres herself, which caused all of us kids to have to get separated. So uh, my brothers and sisters, as uh, most grandparents do, took in my uh, two uh, younger brothers and my younger sister. And my older sister went to her best friends and me. I tried to stay with my mum. 
and the oldest boy to protect my mum because she'd been through a bit of stuff. And um, whenever they put in a, a rehab, they put me in a, a foster family um, close by the rehab. Um, that happened a few times, and um, every time she'd get out of rehab, um, she'd go back to the same bloke. And one bloke in particular, um, uh, he used to beat my mum pretty severely by grabbing her by the scruff of the head and um, literally punching into her face. And, and I've seen her getting sexually uh, abused and, and by this fella. And, and things got pretty bad one morning. We got up three o'clock in the morning and I had my brothers and sisters hidden under the bed. And, um, I could just hear my mum crying. So I walked out to the lounge room and, um, and I see my mum sitting on the couch. Her, her eyes were purple. Her face is matted in blood. Um, she had her false teeth in one hand and she had super glue in the other one. And she's sitting there shaking with her right hand trying to glue her teeth back together. And she looked up and, um, I've been through lots of stuff like that. With three o'clock in the morning, we'd have to run up the up the street with this bloke chasing us. Um, should go back into rehab again. Then we got put in foster families or um, grandparents. And um, and um, every time she'd get out, she'd go back to the same bloke who did the same stuff. Um, after this happened a few times, probably around the age of eight, she just got out of a, a drug and alcohol rehab, and we moved into a caravan park in um, Kelmscott, in which is again Perth, WA. And um, I met this young fella there, and we'd become friends. And, and he said one night, hey, do you want to stay over at my caravan? And um, so I asked my mum, and she said, yeah, that's all right. So I stayed over with mates. And I was eight, and um, I wake up in the morning uh, during the night, and this bloke was giving me oral sex. Um, it was my mate's uncle. And um, I remember I was I woke up, but I just pretended I was asleep. But I was frozen. I was um, petrified. That this man was doing this stuff to me. And when I got up in the morning, I got out there as quick as I could. And um, as I was walking back to mum, I heard a voice in my head um, said, you need to tell your mum. And then I heard another voice and it said, no, she doesn't love you. She loves the bottle and the blokes more than she loves you. I remember thinking, yeah, that's right. Because if she loved me, then that bloke wouldn't have done that stuff to me. If she loved me, she wouldn't keep going back to the same bloke that beats the crap out of her. Um, and I wouldn't have been put in all these homes. I was only eight years old, an eight-year-old kid, I mean, and um, so I didn't, I didn't uh, tell my mum. But from that day forward, I just hated it with a passion, and so I started running away from home, um, sleeping on the streets. Uh, I'd break into the Good Samaritan bins, and um, the police would catch me. They'd take me back again, and, and eventually I got put in a, a place, a children's home called Parkable. I'd run away from there a few times. Um, I remember I was nine and I'd run away from the Parkville Children's Home and the uh, police found me at four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning um, in a Good Samaritan bin clothing bin. They'd opened the door. They'd obviously found out I'd been camping in there and they took me back up to Parkville uh, Children's Home. Now, I hadn't seen my dad since he was took off with a babysitter uh, for a couple of years, but they took me up to Parkville and I, I remember as a nine-year-old kid, I walked in the room and my dad was sitting there and then there's a dad to the right and the counsellor to the left and then they just walked me in this room I'm in a bit of a shock because dad was there uh, and the lady just says to me Peter obviously don't want to be here anymore and you're wasting our time and our resources we're going to give you a choice and you can either go and stay with your dad or you can go to Longmore and when I looked at my dad That's Longmore Prison um, right? Yeah Longmore is a boys prison so it's a, it's a detention centre for kids up to the age of 16 and then there's another one that goes... But don't you use, I was going to say, but don't you usually have to have uh, committed some form of crime, even as a juvenile, to go to Longmore? Or 
Is it a case of they just gave you that choice because you're either staying there or with your dad? Um, I would have thought you'd have to go there for um, committing crimes, but I didn't get put in there for committing crimes. All I, all I wanted was my mum and my dad. And I couldn't understand why dad took off. I couldn't understand why mum was doing what she's doing. I couldn't understand why I got abused. I, I didn't understand why I kept getting put with strangers. I'm only a nine-year-old kid for crying out loud, you know. And um, and even then, when that when that chick says to me, you can either go with your dad or you go to Longmore. I mean, a nine-year-old kid should have to make a, a life-altering or changing choice like that. But, um, yeah, Longmore is a, a prison for people who commit any crimes from murder to stealing cars to drugs to anything. But I, when, I, when, I, when I, she gave me that choice, she said, you can either go to your dad's or go to Longmore. I heard the same voice. She says, um, he doesn't love you. He loves that babysitter more than he loves you. And my brain, and I look back at it now, and I can, I can see where it is, the key parts of my life, um, and what I went through, circumstances I faced, changed the, the direction of my life. And, and when I heard that voice, he doesn't love you anymore, again, I said, yeah, that's right. He loves a babysitter more than you. And I said, I'll go to Longmore. And I had no idea that Longmore was an actual prison. Um, and so it was my dad was the one that actually took me to Longmore. Um, it was one o'clock in the morning, he took me out for a feed. Um, and I remember clear as day, we went to this place um, called uh, Flintstones in Guildford, and I had a burger with my dad. And for me, it's probably one of the best memories I've ever got. It's just me and dad having a burger. Um, but he said, do you want to come with me? And because he was staying with his babysitter, I said, nah. And, and, and all, all the drive on the way to Longmore, I heard this voice, you're making a mistake, you're making a mistake. Um, but then I heard this other voice saying, stuff him, make him pay. So I knew I was making a mistake, but I wanted to get him back for what he's done to me, how he just deserted me. Right? And um, they took me to Longmore, it was one o'clock in the morning, I walked up to these gates, and the prison officer opened the gates, and I walked in, and I looked back and seen Dad sitting in the car with a babysitter. And um, they took me into the, the uh, prison, um, done the paperwork, they stripped me naked. Um, I'm a nine-year-old kid. They put knit cream on my hair, crab cream on my nuts, and um, and they gave me a towel and comic, six comic books and some toilet and, and I walked down the corridor of this prison cell, and um, I was petrified. You mean my heart was going 100 miles an hour, and um, it wasn't like the other children's homes. You mean I was scared. I went down about the sixth cell on the left-hand side, and the prison officer opened the door and pushed me in there, bolted the door shut. I could hear him walking up the corridor. And um, I remember chucking my stuff on the steel bench, jumping on the bed, and I just cuddled my pillow. And I just started rocking side to side really fast, crying, saying, if you let me out now, I'll behave, I'll be a good boy. Um, I, won't, I won't run away again. And um, I'm a 53-year-old fella, and I still cuddle my pillow every night, and I rock side to side when I'm going through some stuff. But I remember laying in that prison cell, and I swear that if somebody had to let me out that day, um, that I would never have run away from a children's home again. That experience of being stripped naked and um, put in a prison um, scared the living crap out of me. And as I was sitting there, like side to side crying, um, I heard a voice again and I said, Peter, from this day forward, you're going to have to look after yourself. And I remember as a nine-year-old kid, I made a vow from this day forward, I'm going to look after me. And I got up the next morning and um, cleaned my cell, mopped my floor, stood by my door for cell inspection. I mean, I spent three months in Longmore, um, but it was the first time in three years, two, three years that I, I finally had a home. And all those kids in that jail, and they're all like me. 
and mum had chosen another man, dad had chosen another woman, mum and dad had separated, they didn't know where they fit, they had no family, and all, all we wanted was to be geeks, we wanted to be normal people. I mean, I would have given anything as a kid to better run up the corridor and jump in bed with mum and dad for cuddle or go to one school, not six in schools, but I spent three months now, I met a lot of friends, and they become my family, they understood me and I understood them. And then when I got out, I got put in another children's home called Warminder, and I met a couple of the fellows in there, and that's when I started using drugs and substances from the age of nine. Um, I become uh, what they call institutionalised. Um, I spent literally my whole childhood from the age of nine to 18 in prison. Um, I'd be out for a month, and then I'd be back in, locked up for six months, out for a day, back in for nine months. Um, I spent seven birthdays in a row in Longmore from the age of nine to 16. Uh, and then when I hit 16, I graduated to the next child, which is called Riverbank. And when I wasn't locked up, I'd, I'd live on the streets. So I was a street kid in Perth from probably 79 to 88. Um, we just live under the bridges, Supreme Court Gardens and stuff. And um, I uh, graduated but to the years, Riverbank. Peter, I, I'm, I'm the same age as you, and they're the years that you're meant to be doing sort of grade 6 through to year 12 at school. So your education is yeah. basically on the streets rather than... Now, did you did you have any form of learning in, when you were locked up as well, or, or was just basically yeah. looking after yourself? Uh, when you locked up, it was just ticking a box. I went to sixteen different schools throughout my childhood, but I was never at one school long enough to learn. I, I don't have any school reports except for one from grade one. Um, I never made any friends because you moved from school to school. I was the type of kid that I always felt like I didn't fit. Um, and because when uh, I did go to school, I never had money for lunches. I used to have to put, pinch other kids' lunches. And, and um, yeah, my schooling wasn't too good. I only made grade six. Um, yeah, so we moved around a fair bit. No, that's um, – but you, you met your wife when you were age 19, and she was 17, I believe, and you got married and pretty much started the family, I think it was within 12 months of getting married. Is that right? Yeah, so I'm, I was uh, living in Kelska and um, I was selling drugs at the pub and my wife's a geek. I was a geek. He's a geek now. A geek, just to clarify, is like uh, used to look like a pair of geeks. Yep. Um, cool. A geek is like a normal, normal person, a productive member of society. And yep. You look like you got it together. Yep. You project an image that I perceive that you're better than me. And that's what I call a geek. He's just normal people. My whole life I wanted to be a geek, but I just didn't know how. But I set the pub and my wife, coming from Wongan Hill, she's a country girl, farmer's daughter, third generation farmer, a head girl, ducks at school. I think the, the, the worst thing she ever did was sneak in the boys' dorm on a dare. But um, she moved to, from Wongan Hills to Perth to study horticulture and, and one of her friends at the tape took her to the pub. So it was the first pub she ever went to. And, and uh, when she walked in the front door of the pub, I'm, I'm probably 50 metres way at far end of the bar. And then when she walked through the door, she seen me from a distance. She gazed upon my glory, and then she fell on the floor like a big puddle because of my looks, you see. And um, and she said to her friend, "Who is that man?" And um, Amber said, "Oh, you don't want to you don't want to go near to him. He's he's bad." And um, anyway, I, I worked off the feet. The pub had shut, and um, uh, there was like thirteen blokes and two sheilas, and we decided to go up in the hills and chuck a campfire on. And um, I played dot to dot for like eight and a half hours with her and I ended up wooing her and so everyone else missed out and I scored 
And but I just started dating. I didn't score as in like jig jig score, but I yeah. scored as in a couple of misses, I mean. Yeah. And um I slightly ruined her life. I introduced her to drugs and speed and ex- ecstasy and yeah, and just slightly just led her into thirteen years of hell. In saying that, though, you are uh, uh, two children, correct? A son and a daughter. Yeah, we got, no, I've got, I've got, actually got three kids. Um, okay, three. Yep. Two, so two, two, two of them, and three kids of uh, eight grandkids. Yep. Okay. So it's uh, so, and you are still together, but as you did just state, though, you did put go through thirteen uh, years of hell. Well, you put her through. Now, uh, what you did become. Um, there was there was a quote that I saw that everything Peter does in life he does it a hundred percent, including being a dealer. Um, and even at one stage, it was stated not by you but somebody by interview who was interviewing you that you yourself had a seven thousand dollar per day habit um, at that stage, drug habit, habit as well. So, do you want to talk us through that stage of your life when you are a young dad, but you're also a you know, married young dad and a, you know, a, a drug dealer, you know, of the highest order, not just selling a bit of weed uh, to some mates at school, but, you know, a drug dealer of their biggest order. You just want to talk us just briefly through that 13-year period uh, that you and your wife went through together. So basically when I met my wife, my, my incarceration um, started to slow down. Um, but the problem is, and I, I've got a saying, you can take the prisoner out of prison, but then you've got to get the prisoner out of the prisoner. So even though I wasn't in prison, I was still in prison. And um, I'm the sort of fellow that if I moved to Kalgoorlie, I'd start off with a packet, then work my way to an eight ball and then to an ounce. And I could see myself going to jail, so I'd take off to the next town. So we've been around Australia probably seven times, running from me wherever I went. I went and um, and just dragged my wife along with me. But then um, it was 1999. I got done with a few hundred charges and ended up getting three years jail. And um, that was just after my second son was born. And um, I could see my kids. And my son, Peter, at the time was probably four, five, and the other one was Ryan was two. I could see what I was doing to my kids and that they were going to live the life that I lived. And even even then, I never actually spent time with my kids because I was too busy out selling drugs. But I'd do 16 days no sleep. I got out of jail in 2000. And one, I went to jail the day my son was born. I got raided by the coppers. And I got three years jail. I got out of jail. And I thought, stuff it, I've been doing drugs my whole life. And stuff, I might as well do it for a living. And so I just started selling drugs full on. I was selling, selling on average uh, 40,000 a day in methamphetamines, two and a half kilos a day. Uh, heaps of guns. And I used to get uh, raided a fair bit by the coppers. Um, I went really, really big, really, really quick when I put my head into it. And... Um, yeah, I've, uh, I'd, I'd disappear for 16 days and on end leave my wife with the two kids and she'd hear stories about me sleeping around with all these other women and doing other stuff. And um, so she knew what was going on. And one day I, uh, I was living in Bayswater and um, coppers come, I had a helicopter over the roof, uh, TRG come through front and back, shotguns, bulletproof vests. My mate crashed, he pulls in the driveway and... Um, they basically got raided again. We used to get raided every couple of months, but this time they got me with a couple of handguns, uh, pound of pot, and tend to sell and supply and some other charges. We got my mate crashed. He got done with an ounce of meth and ended up getting uh, seven years. And um, they, uh, uh, when they come through the house, I see my wife laying in the corridor, um, basically half naked, holding my, my son with a shotgun to her head. 
And um, yeah, just my whole life, I just I kept saying to my wife, I don't want to be who I am. I just wish I was a normal person. I hate the way I look, the way I smell. I can see what I'm doing to her. My kids, I got out on bail. And um, yeah, that's when uh, stuff started happening. It's, um, I mean, that's just amazing what, you know, you had to go through and things like that as well. But if we move to the next chapter of your life, um, you know, you, you, I saw a quote here that, Peter, I want you to follow me. Uh, you, you heard, um, whether it be a voice in your head or something in your heart, just keep saying to you, Peter, I, I want you to follow me. And I believe you told a few people and they thought it might have been, might have been going a bit psychotic with the drugs uh, that you had been taken, but that was your calling to the life, the start of the life that you have now. Do you want to just give us a bit of background of that, that, that when that was happening and, and that time you decided, you spoke to your wife and said, we're going to church. You want to tell, tell our listeners a bit about that story? So what actually happened, we lived across the road from a park. I just got out on bail and, um, and my wife had enrolled my son in this thing called grasshopper soccer. And for those who don't know, grasshopper soccer is a bit like Auskick. Um, I've never played sports myself. Don't know how to kick a footy. Can't stand footy, actually. Um, but my wife had enrolled my son in grasshopper soccer. And, and, and this, what happened there was what was a catalyst for me to start changing. But at the time, I was under really heavy surveillance. My factory was bugged. My cars were bugged. My house was bugged. Um, people follow me when you're selling that amount of gear. They try to work out where you are in the food chain. But she enrolled my son in this grasshopper soccer, and she said, can you take him over? I took him over to the park, and there's all these geeks there, and they had all their five-year-olds there. And, and we all stood in a circle, and the deal was um, that if the kid kicked the ball through the dad's legs, then the dad had to roll around on the ground, coochie-coochie-coo, making the kid full all fluffy, if you know what I'm saying. And I'm thinking, man, this is just right out of my comfort zone. My heart's going to turn a mile an hour, and then I see this geek, and his kid kicks out and he goes, kitsch, 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 and all that makes kids. And then the next one does it, and my heart's going, I think, man, if this bloke does it to me, I'm out of here. This, this is not cool, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, um, and then my son, Pete, my son, Pete, he, um, he kicked the ball through my, my legs. And for me, that was the breaking point uh, or the turning point. Um, but I remember I just turned my back on my son, and I left him there. I walked away, and I just started crying. And I wouldn't give anything to make my son feel like what those other dads could do for their kids. But I just didn't know how. I've never had a dad. No one taught me how to lift the dunny seat you know, from, for a Sheila to say and get pubic hair and dribbles all over the, the, the plate. You know? um, and I walked off and I, I just started crying. And I, I remember I just yucked this prayer up and I said, God, if you're real, I, I don't want to be like this. I need your help. And I just cried. You know? And I walked over to the mistress and said, woman, you got to go. Look after the boy, you know, and um, I can't do it. And um, that's when all weird stuff started happening. Um, I'd get in my car and go out and do my deals and my drugs and stuff. And I started hearing a voice in my head saying, Peter, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. And I'd have the radio on. I was listening to this Christian radio station, which I didn't know at the time it was a Christian one. It was 98.5, and I'd hear the radio talking to me. And I'm thinking, this is weird. I think you know, maybe the coppers are trying to... I mean, loop out a looper and make me all sloppy. And um, you know, I'm just driving my car by myself and I'm hearing this voice saying, follow me, follow me. I want you to follow me. And then the car in front would tap on its brake pedals a few times. And then I felt that this voice in my head was telling me to follow that car. So I'd follow the car in front. 
And I went left, right, left. And, and then all of a sudden I pull up at the park and the car drove off. And I'm looking around and then I look and then there's a family on the, in, the, in the park. And there was a mum and a dad. And um, they had their three kids and um, they're just having a picnic. And I heard a voice and it said, Peter, I'm offering you this. And I just sat in my car and cried and tears and snot running down my beard. And, and um, I wanted that, you know what I mean? I wanted to go on a picnic. I wanted to sit in the park. I wanted to – I never experienced that stuff. I don't even know how to do that, you know what I mean? And I sat there for like 20 minutes in my car and had a big soup and then um, composed myself and drove off again. And it kept happening for like three days. And, and for three days, honestly, I got led over all over Perth. I never, no one would talk to me. Somebody was offering me everything I ever wanted. I mean, I'm driving along and I get, oh, Peter, I want you to follow me. And I follow this car left, right, left, pull up, car drives off. And I turn and there's a brand new display home. And, and all, I, all I ever wanted was one home. I've moved every three months my whole life, ever since I was a seven-year-old kid. And I just wanted one home. I wanted to be normal. I'd sit there and cry in my car. Then I go back and tell my missus, I say, something weird's going down. And um, and she thought, oh, yeah, you're just looping out on the gear. But I'm telling you, I could even make, even try to score. And everything was just going, if I could even get a hold of drugs. And it was like someone's intervening. And um, then I was thinking, maybe the copper's right. The copper's going to make a film of my life and, and show people, hey, this is what happens when you use drugs. And I thought they were looping me out. Anyway, um. Uh, I thought my car's bugged. I ripped all the dash out, ripped the roof lining off. Um, I've caught them under surveillance. I've caught their coppers surveilling me. I found all their listening devices in my factory. I had a big factory at the time. And um, I thought, okay, well, I'll lose the coppers and, and get them off my case. So I um, I uh, took my car home. I got on my bike. It was a brand-new VM 1500 Cruiser. And um, I lifted the roller door, skidded it out the driveway, Cut through about 200 metres of sand and got on the on the Tonkin Highway and then I started driving and and then all of a sudden it started happening again. But I was sitting on my bike and I was probably about um, uh, probably about 20 k's out of Wanneroo, out in a country road, a place called Nirabup. I just passed the petrol station and now this bike, if you if you know bikes or anyone who likes bikes, this is standard pipe, standard everything, no tuner kit, no nothing. And I'm sitting on this bike and all of a sudden this bike it started vibrating. I mean, your balls would start bouncing on the tank. The handlebars were just like, you know, it was just like, it was a whole universe coming sync. And I'm going, yeah, this is like the bomb, you know. <laughs> and, um, and I was just like, and then it just went boom, 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 and it just died on me, you know what I'm saying? And then I pull out the side of the road, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, the coppers have bloody put a motor in there because bikes don't do that. And um, if you're into bikes, mate, it's, anyway, I'll move it on. And, um, <laughs> I pulled, it, I pulled the plastics apart and I pulled the tank off and I'm trying to find the motor for it to do what it did. It's a brand new bike, it's full tank of juice and she just wouldn't crank over. And um, so I couldn't find anything. So I had to hitch back to the petrol station. So I got on the other side of the road and I started uh, hitching. And what I looked back, like back then, it was a classic, uh, uh, I looked like a classic goose. I mean, I had diamond rings on every finger, big beard, bald head, um, just looked like a skanked out idiot. And, but I started hitching and then this young couple pulls up and I get in the back seat of this young couple's car and, and as we're driving along, they had this music playing and, um, I don't know what was happening in the car, mate, but I got about 2k up the road and this, 
young dude turned, he would have been 19, 20. He turns around and he says, mate, I feel I've got to tell you something. I said, what's that? And he says, I feel like God's telling me to tell you um, that he loves you and that he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And, mate, I just exploded. I just just couldn't stop crying. I told him, get me out of your car. In the last four days, no one would speak to me. Somebody was offering me everything I ever wanted. And um, at the same time, I'm under surveillance. The people I'm doing the drugs for, I reckon they'd be pissed off. And I I got out of the car and I went in the bush and I had a soup, cried. And uh, I walked back out in the hallway. I put my leather jacket on the the side of one of those little red sticks they have on the side of the road, traffic markers. And I started hitching again. And then this other other car pulls up and it was a black F two fifty pickup truck. And the bloke had black hair, ponytail at the back, and it was a Kiwi fella. He had half his face covered in tattoos from all his forehead, his nose, his chin. Um, and he says, Hey bros, and it was a black F two fifty pickup boy. And he says, Bro, is that your bike back there? I says, Yeah, he goes, Oh, we'll go back and pick it up, eh? I says, Nah, mate. I gotta get the phone box room room a woman, something weird's going down. He goes, No worries, so I jumped in this dude's car. And we start driving up the road. And I'm telling you, mate, out of the blue, he turns around and he says, mate, I feel I've got to tell you something. I says, oh, yeah, what's that? He says, God loves you, bro. He loves you and he's got a plan and purpose for your life. And I just wailed in his car and cried. And um, that was two people in the space and not even five Ks. And he drove me to the petrol station. And I wanted, I wanted whoever this was, I wanted what they were offering me. I, I remember I got out of the petrol station I walked in, I took all my diamond rings off, all my chains, threw them all in the bin at the roadhouse, and I walked out of the public phone box, and I rang my woman, and I said, hey, something weird's going down. You've got to come pick me up. And when I was a bit too scared to put my thumb out again, and um, she goes, I can't, I've got to pick the kids up from school. So I um, I walked back out in the hallway again, and, and I chucked my thumb out, and I walked probably about 50 metres, and then this old granny pulls up, and she like, in the Datsun 200B, and she had platinum haircut, like this big woolly white head. And, and and she pulls over and she goes, they don't normally pick up Hitchhiker's son, but you look different. And then she put a thumb on the dentures to push her teeth back in a gob. Remember, it's clear as day. And um, so I got in the seat with this granny in the front of this dado and we started cruising up the road. And this old granny, she's just, I got probably three, four Ks and she just turned around and she says, love, I just really feel that God's saying that he loves you. And that has a plan and a purpose for your life. Um, and I just started crying. And each one of the three people in the space of 10Ks, and none of them knew each other, and each one said exactly the same thing. And I just cried in this granny's car. And um, she drove me all the way from Nirabup, um, about 60Ks to home. And I just cried all the way. And um, when I got home to my wife, I just said, listen, I, we've got to get out of here. Something weird's going down. So I grabbed my missus and my kids, and my two kids, five and uh, two, and um, I drove out to Wanneroo and I booked into a motel. And um, the second I got into the motel, I covered all the windows up, covered all the, the mirrors up, because little people I used to call them, they're like everywhere. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just covered all them up and then I, I went to sleep. And um, I didn't grow up in Christianity. I didn't grow up with God. I didn't go to church. I mean, when I was locked up in the youth groups and the, and the prisons and stuff, I used to go to the Christian groups, but not not to listen to what they had to say. I wanted to perv on the shears and have a feed and that, you know what I mean? And it was the only place you can go when you're locked up that you don't get smacked in the back of the head or you don't have to project an image that people perceive to fit in there. You can just let your guard down. These Christian mob were different. But um, 
Yeah, I went to sleep, mate, and I tell you, I, I wake up three o'clock in the morning. I don't know what, what it is about three o'clock in the morning, but I wake up three o'clock in the morning and um, I had a dream. Um, and in my dream, God says, Peter, you're going to travel the world with a group of Christian people and you're going to tell them how to change your life. And I tell you what, man, I felt, I felt his presence from the, from the tip of my head to the soles of my feet. I could feel unconditional love, um, forgiveness. I just, I felt him. I know that I knew, and that I knew that I knew that he was real. And he's the one that was on the back for the last few weeks. And he heard my prayer when I walked off from my son. I said, God, if you're real, I need your help. You know what I mean? And, um, and, uh, and he said, I want you to go to church. And I wake my wife up and I say, I just had a dream from God. And she goes, oh, that's nice. And rolls back over and goes to sleep. But I couldn't sleep. And I'm staring at the window, looking around, thinking, oh, maybe these coppers are playing with my head. And uh, next morning when she woke up, um, I told her we're going to church. And um, I hadn't been to church before, so I had to get churchified. And uh, so I went out and I got myself a three-piece suit. What an idiot, eh? <laughs> but I got me <laughs> No, Peter, I own a few of them. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I got this three-piece suit. I got my Mrs. Churchified, my kids Churchified. And um, and we drive around all day. I'm, I'm not joking. Every church that I pulled into, if you ask my wife, I went to probably 26, 27 different churches. I'd pull in this church. And I heard this voice, not that one. And then I'd go to another church because not that one. And we went from Wanneroo. Um, we went from north, south, east, west to Perth, and it was like 4.30 in the hour, and pulling into um, Morley Shopping Centre Galleria, and um, and there's a church there, and it said New Life Church, and I, I heard this voice, I want you to go to that one. And um, so we pulled up, and the service was like 20 minutes away. When the service started, I walked towards the building to get to the door. They stole my kids off me. And the kids go one way and you go another way. But the second I walked into the building, I didn't know it was kids' church. You know? And the second you walk in the building, man, my legs started shaking. I started shaking. I started crying. I'm just like, what's happening here? You know, and there's something different in there. And um, this preacher was preaching on how dare that uncircumcised Philistine defy the armies of the living God. And I'm thinking, wow. You know, and, and, and in the end, um, we gave this altar call. And she said, we want to ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord. You want to repent of your sins. And I want you to come forward. Mate, I was a slobbing mess. I could hardly walk, and I walked up to the front. My missus come with me. Um, I think she just didn't want to be left in the seat, shall we? And um, wacky Christians with their hands up in the air and singing these songs. But I went up the front, and I prayed this prayer, and I heard a voice saying, I want you to give up everything you own and follow me. And, um, yes, yeah, so I become a Christian. I asked Christ in my heart, and, um, yeah, I... I I moved out to Jinjin Caravan Park, which is probably 60k out of Perth, and I had to detox because them days I was doing 16 days no sleep, steroids, um, lots of guns, lots of stupid stuff, and so I moved out there. And the surveillance mob must have seen, um, must have seen me uh, make the decision to change. I literally gave away everything I had in my factory, all my cars, all my hot goods, anything I bought with drug money, gave everything away because he said give up everything else, so I gave it away, and. Um, I had a dodgy lawyer because I was on bail for handguns and, and other stuff. But I had this dodgy lawyer and I had to swap my dodgy lawyer for a legit one. And um, I ended up pleading guilty and going back to jail. But uh, that took about three months. Peter, your listeners can't see you, 
but we will put a photo up of you. Um, and but you're, I, I know you're you're a big strong man. Uh, you got lots of artwork all over your body there. Um, you know we're probably prone to a bit of artwork in this office ourselves. Um, you know you and as you're telling that story, I'm tearing up watching you shed a tear as you're telling that beautiful story of how you made change in your life. So first of all, I want to thank you for being vulnerable and telling that story. Uh, that is just amazing. You've gone to church. You've changed your life. You've gone to Bible college. You've become a chaplain in prison. You're no longer dealing drugs. You're no longer taking drugs. Um, and, you know, you're, you've grown your family. You've got your family-owned gardening business at this stage. You changed your life. You changed your family's life. Uh, and, you know, you, you've now got this thriving business. But then you've decided you went and purchased Shalom House. Well, it wasn't called Shalom House. It was a property and you named it Shalom House. Now, for those of, who don't know, um, you know, Shalom is something if you, if you, uh, if you're either Jewish or you know a lot of Jewish people, you'll hear them say Shalom quite often, which actually stands for peace, you know, and wholeness and goodness in people's lives. And, and I know you stated that in one of the articles, uh, in respect to, uh, why Shalom. So you purchased Shalom House. And you've decided to actually start Shalom House to help other people who have gone through the same pain of drug addiction and everything else and, and, and everything that comes with drug addiction as you have, uh, as your wife has gone through as well to help them change their lives. And it is known as probably the strictest, but not strictest as in harsh. We're going to cane you because people can, people don't want to go through with it. They can leave at any time. It's, it's, you know, not like, uh, forced rehab. It's voluntary in that respect, but you've changed so many people's lives. But can you talk about Shalom House, uh, a bit, a bit about the program and the stages you go through that is strictly, you know, extremely strict, uh, and rules based. So if you can talk about that as well. And then we'll sort of go into some of what the the outcomes um, of some of these amazing people that I've seen interviewed and how their lives have turned over, you know, a period of six or nine or 12 months and how they've turned, uh, just turned greatly. So if we can go into the into Shalom House, that would be wonderful. Yep. So timeline for that is um, done two and a half or three years of Bible college. 2005, five years as a volunteer chaplain at Acacia Prison to 2010. From 2010, I became a full-time volunteer, and I volunteered out around all the rehabs from 2010 to 2012. And then 2012 was when I started Shalom. And in 2012, I drove past Banyard Prison, sent a house to sale, and felt to have a look at the house. And um, so I ended up purchasing the house, took a mortgage on it, and um, and um, just started to disciple people. Um, disciple means mentor. Um, and try and put into practice what I've learned over the last so many years of my life to try and help other people change their lives like I changed mine. And we started with four or five residents, and um, I thought it'd be as easy as just sticking people in there, but then we started having to put rules, and, and we developed stage one, then stage two, then stage three, stage four, and then basically stage five. So it's a holistic a rehab program that the property grew, or the, the residents within the program it was like the Pied Piper that played a pipe that never played a pipe, and they just kept coming. We've never advertised. Um, currently, we have around 160 residents, 
Um, we have a men's program, women's program, and also families program. And um, it's a holistic program. The word Shalom actually means um, love, truth, honesty, integrity. And so I called it originally Shalom Discipleship House. And everyone kept saying, you run a rehab. And I said, no, it's actually a discipleship house. And I end up waving my flag, okay, um, it's a rehab. So Shalom Rehabilitation Centre. And the word Shalom is begin with the end in mind. So my aim for everybody who comes through Shalom is to be Shalom. Uh, they come in broken and we want them to go out being people of integrity and part of the solution, not part of the problem. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Can you, can you talk a little bit about uh, the stages of the program? Those four yeah, stages? Yeah, oh, there's five stages to the program. So the first stage is we don't have one program. We have 160 programs. So we have 160 residents. Um, and what's not one program fits all. And we are a holistic rehab, so we have the doctors, the psych, the counsellors, mentors, home life, work life. And so the stage one is just assessing where the person's at. We draw a line in the sand and we start from scratch. We don't read the notes from past psychs or doctors or counsellors or DCP, um, but we just work out what the family structure is. We also work out what the finances are, what's the general issues of a car or do they need a flat that, um, that needs cleaning up or, and also what do they want to do with their life. And so over the first three months is working out what that person's program is. Um, and not only that, learning the culture of the house at the stage two part of the program. They've been in the program for three months and we get each person two days a week paid work and with an employer on the same page as the rehab. And um, 100% of the income that they earn goes to them and we use those funds to get everybody debt free. So everyone graduates um, from Shalom House 100% debt free. And not only that, we get everybody off of Centrelink within four months and we're 100% self-funded organisation so we don't apply for grants or Lotteries West or we don't get government funding. And we are a registered not-for-profit and we're also a, uh, an accredited uh, drug and alcohol um, organisation. Um, but the stage two part is about um, giving the resident an opportunity to put into practice what they've learned within Shalom within the workplace. We actually interview the employers and we want the employers to make sure that they take an active part in that person's rehabilitation by not teaming them up um, in the workplace if somebody uses drugs or substances or drinks. And we can tell by the attitude of the resident back in the house if the workplace is having a positive or negative effect. And we can also tell by the feedback from the uh, employer if our residents are putting into practice what we've taught them in the workplace. And that's the stage two, getting them used to work. It's not just about rehabilitation, but also uh, reintegration and resocialization. Um, and the stage three part, the residents get their phone, um, they get a car, they can come and go off the property and they, and, and they get more privileges. And then stage four, they're generally working probably five days a week with an employee on the same page as the rehab. And when they move to stage five, um, they've basically been through the whole of the program. All their family relationships are restored. We don't just take on the resident, we take on all the residents, family members who have been affected by that resident's stupidity. Um, and at the stage five, we fix all the families up. All the finances should be 100% debt free. They should be working full time with the employee on the same page as the rehab, whether it's an apprenticeship or whether it's just paid work. Um, and all the general issues are fixed. And so they generally apply at the stage five to move out, they move off site. And three months after they moved off site, um, they can apply to graduate. So reintegration into the community and resocialization basically starts from day one when they first come in. And so there's no, there's no set time where they just, uh, you let go. They're, they're always a part of Shlom. And even Shlom, 
And we have hardscapes, softscapes, businesses. We have fencing and paving and limestone. But 100% of the income that those um, uh, vehicles or the businesses make um, goes to the residents and helping them get their teeth repaired and, and also all that sort of stuff. It's it's quite inspirational what you do because I I believe one of the, you got some strict rules there for example no cigarettes no alcohol no drugs obviously um, and from from that aspect and having you know witnessed that myself personally unfortunately uh, many years ago but to go cold turkey is something which is you know extremely hard but. I believe so. Somebody comes in, they might have been a pack a day smoker when they started with you. They could have been an alcoholic. They could have been a drug user. But you guys obviously have got them going cold turkey. And correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that's done whilst they work and there's no sort of, uh, putting them on medication to go cold turkey. It's basically willpower and discipline. Is that correct? That's correct. Every, every resident who comes in, it's cold turkey or everything. And that, that's the, um, including the phone. Everything. Including the phone, no phone, um, not to get to stage three, uh, no smoking, um, no one's on any antidepressants, um, no one's on lithium, xeroquil, zyprexa, lanzapine. Um, all those drugs do is cover up the stuff that we need to get to. Um, 90% of the people here, the root cause of why they are, why they are is childhood trauma. Um, and when they use the drugs and the substances and um, the alcohol to cover up the guilt, the shame, the anger, the bitterness, you would have heard me say before, the root cause of why I was like I was is the unforgiveness towards my mum, unforgiveness towards my dad, the hatred towards that man who molested me. And they were the root causes that drove me into a world that I didn't want to be in. And so when you take the blanket off, we've got to help them to deal with all the root causes of why they are like they are. Yeah, it's and it's to go cold turkey is, you know, ex- exceptional. It's, you know, I've, I've often said that if somebody is, uh, saying that, you know, they're suffering from depression. Well, it's actually don't take a tablet. What's the cause of that depression? You know, and it's, it's simple things sometimes like getting an endorphin rush, um, or a dopamine rush from actually doing exercise rather than from taking a substance. Uh, you know, can be exceptional. Uh, obviously it's far healthier as well. Now I'm no expert whatsoever. Um, I've just been witness to it in my own right. In saying that, though, I, I saw a post on LinkedIn that you did, I think it was this week or last week, a gent holding a sign, $308,000 debt-free. Um, and, you know, he's he went to Shalom House. He went to Shalom House as an addict. He's, uh, he's done everything that you guys have helped him do. Um, they accept God into their life as well, I believe. Uh, they attend, is it four services odd a year? <coughs> no, so... That, sorry, four services, four services a week, sorry, faith-based, yes. No, so we're, we're a faith-based rehab. We don't um, rehabilitate Christians, even though they all need it. Um, yeah. But you can, you can come in gay and you can leave gay. You can come in lesbian, leave lesbian. You can come in LGBTCPQ. Um, yeah. But just there's no relationships here. Yeah. And you can come in an atheist and you can leave an atheist. You can come in a Buddhist. You can come in whatever you want and you can leave whatever you want. Yeah. But we are unashamedly a faith-based rehab. And we do go to church, um, and we do read the Bible, um, and, and you don't have to become a Christian to come here. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people do actually find a relationship with God um, through our program. But it's okay if you don't; it's not pushed down you. Um, the the faith side when, when we go to churches, I often say if the Church of God was like Hungry Jack, it should be chockers. 
when you go to, when you go to Hungry, uh, Hungry Jacks, you know what you can get. Whopper double beef with cheese, heavy mayonnaise. May I have extra pickle DP cut in half, please? You know, but when you go to church, um, well, church has caused a lot of people a lot of problems. Um, and a lot of people, the root cause of why they are like they are, have been forced to go to church their whole life. And then one day they think, well, church like that, I want nothing to do with it. Um, so we go to all these different mobs. On a Friday night, we could go to a big church called Global Heart, where that's like a band on stage. Or we could go to a Catholic or an Anglican one, where they have a little cracker and they stick in a bit of plonk. Um, or we could go to a Pentecostal one, where they go, Ooh, la, 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 la. what are you doing down there? Fall on the floor type church. <laughs> And um, yeah. some of them are ones like the Pentecostal wacky ones. Some of them like the charismatic ones. Some of them like the big band or the little cracker. Um, we yeah. don't have one program. We have 160 programs. And I don't want to push religion down there, afraid, and I don't want to push them to a particular denomination. Um, I don't believe that God made denominations. I think that as people made that stuff up. Um, but going to the churches, a lot of them are geeks, you mean? And, um, and it's about forcing them to have conversations. And when they start to have conversations um, with people like you, they find out you're just as screwed up as what they are. And oh, you're right. Life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And they help get the lives out. And, so, and we do that on Sundays as well. Families fam, fam, our Saturdays. But Sundays we'll go to churches all over Perth. We'll go Joondla, we'll go Mandra, we'll go um, Kalamunda, we'll go Catholic and Baptist and Anglican and Protestant and Pentecostal and Free reformed and non reformed and ill informed and hungry jacks, KFC, chicken treat, even Nando's and McDonald's, God forbid. You know I mean? And so by going all over Perth, because I have people from over first, they find one they feel comfortable with. And when they, when they leave here, they just go plug themselves in somewhere. You know what I mean? Yep. Hey, I just want to share this story with you and see what you, what you think about it. And I remember reading this stories. In uh, the book Awaken the Giant with him by Tony Robbins, and he was interviewing um, to, uh, a couple of uh, male twins, and they they grew up on the south side of Chicago. Um, their father was, um, you know, always in trouble with the law, um, thief, drug addict, uh, drug dealer. Mother was a prostitute. Um, and one of the brothers ended up doing really well for himself and ended up joining, uh, ended up training to become a nurse and then eventually ended up training to become a doctor. The other one ended up in jail as a drug dealer. Um, and when interviewing both of these uh, men, and he asked one question, why did your life turn this way? And both of them actually had the same answer, and it was, what choice did I have? And, you know, in other words, the guy, you know, I have a look at my father and I have a look at my mother. What choice did I have? That was all I got taught. And then the other one said, well, I looked at my mother and my my father and I didn't want to go that way. So what choice did I have? And it's interesting because from that story, what I see from you is you were originally one way and you made a choice. And as a result of that, you're actually showing hundreds upon hundreds if not thousands of people that they also have a choice as well but you're actually helping them get through that you're actually helping society believe in them again and you're helping them believe in themselves again rather than just getting stuck in government institutions and in and out of jail and when all of it sometimes takes is someone to actually have belief in these people that they they can shake this if they actually want to and i see that i see that in you where you're that you're that option for them as what choice because you've actually got the lived experience and the greatest teacher is somebody who actually has lived experience 
you know, in this. And you've come out the other end. You're, you're definitely a hundred percent in everything you do. There's, there's no doubting that. But you're actually teaching these people that they actually have a choice in life, but it's still up to them. You'll, you'll guide them. You'll teach them. And your 20, is it was 22 staff there. So you, you probably got more now, but you know, you're actually helping these people grow. You're non-government funded. There's no government support. I've seen some of the battles you had with government just to try, you know, and ask for, just from asking for help. You don't take money personally. It's, it's, it's self-funded, uh, on that basis as well. You're that choice. You're, you're giving these people that choice. And uh, there's no real question involved there. I just wanted to share it with you, but you know, you're, you're an inspiration. So that's, that's how I'm just going to end it is you're an absolute inspiration because you are doing for these Men, these women, these, you're, you're, you're rebuilding families again by showing them that it can be done and by having belief in them. So I think you're one of the most outstanding individuals that I've met in a very long time and for what you are giving back to society from what you've learned yourself. Uh, I, I just want to sort of end it on that and just say, you know, thank you. Thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for being vulnerable. But most importantly, thank you for everything that you are doing for these young men and women and families and giving them a chance in life again and believing in them. Yeah, thank you, sir. The Kofkin Bond Podcast is a product from Kofkin Bond & Co., which we are an authorised representative of Kofkin Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Kofkin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.